Welcome back to the Word Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Morgan Piersdorf, and this is episode two of season 10 of the Work Bold podcast. As you learned in episode one, this season sticks true to challenging the status quo as I help Caleb out with introducing the brilliant conversations he's having this season. In this episode, Caleb has a chat with Bert Eric Tincate, Europe editor at CoStar Group UK. Off the back of the Urban Land Institute Europe Conference in Madrid, Bert Eric has been covering the real estate market in Europe since the early aughts and had a lot to say about the potential tsunami of contracting office footprints and knock-on effects for the industry. How do we make the best use of the office and what does that really mean post-COVID? Are there key learnings for Europe, for what we're seeing in the US market? Bit early to see how all of the cards fall, but the challenge for investors and policymakers looms large. With 10% or less of office buildings considered prime, what is to be done with stranded assets in light of the continued flight to quality? So many great minds on the pod this season helping us tackle these big questions. As always, if you have any questions or feedback or topics you want covered, reach out to Caleb on Twitter at Caleb underscore Parker, or send him a DM on LinkedIn, where you can also find me as well. So in this episode, we're going to be unveiling the strategies that operators use to leverage NORNORM to boost their revenue and minimize CapEx. How can operators turn sustainable workplace solutions into a more profitable venture? Stay tuned as we journey through insightful conversations with NORNORM co-founder and one of their customers. Jonas, how can operators make money with NORNORM? Well, I think with NORNORM coming in and streaming furniture, we've actually enabled, especially operators, to help their existing clients move into bigger spaces. Uh, One great example, of course, is Epicenter in Stockholm. We've helped grow nearly 7,000 square meters on companies that have had smaller studios, but as soon as a vacant space comes in through this cooperation partner, AMF, Epicenter being able to actually chop it up, put furniture in there, and then rent it out in smaller perspectives. And I think that has been super good way for them to actually help their clients and keep the relationship with their clients that they're in an operator. And also this is zero risk. They can sell it directly initially to a couple of corporates and then they actually take on the space. We furnish it. And if they would want to ramp it down, we'll collect the furniture. So what were the outcomes of this partnership with Epicenter? Stick around to find out later in the show. Now on with the show. Jeff, let's kick it. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and today I'm joined by Bert Eric Tenkate, who is the Europe editor at CoStar Group UK. Bert Eric joined CoStar News as European news editor in April 2021. He's been writing about the European property sector since 2003. He joined CoStar from Debtwire, where he was managing editor for commercial real estate. At Debtwire, he covered property transactions, financing, and distressed debt, with a particular focus on Germany and the Netherlands. Bert Eric joined Debtwire in 2011 to help set up its real estate coverage. And prior to that, he was editor at Euro Property, the fortnightly property newsletter. In his spare time, Bert Eric enjoys reading, running, and mountain biking. Welcome to the Work Bold Podcast, Bert Eric. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be chatting with you this week. Uh, we met last week at the pre-ULI Awards Dinner Drinks in Madrid and had such a great chat. I appreciate Gemma Haynes for introducing us. And wow. That venue for the awards dinner was pretty classy, wasn't it? It was amazing. 
it's um yeah it was quite something worth coming around to address for Absolutely. I had to take a picture, a few pictures of that uh, red carpet going up the stairs and the chandeliers hanging down. It's just my kind of venue. But yeah, so speaking of the ULI conference, uh, how, how was it for you this year? It was an interesting conference. And to start off with, it was the first proper ULI conference uh, since the pandemic. I went to the last one that was before the pandemic. This was uh, February 2020, only weeks before Europe went into lockdown because of the pandemic. So this was the first proper European conference organized by the ULI. So it was, it was good to be back and everything seemed to be back to normal, which is a good sign. What's not normal, of course, is the uh, situation in the real estate market because we've emerged from the pandemic successfully and now the real estate sector is hit by other challenges that they, uh, they are trying to tackle. Well, I think that's very true and it's on everybody's minds right now. And obviously you've been covering the European property industry since 2003. You came in after the dot-com bubble, but you've witnessed the GFC firsthand. So I'm curious, like, what would you say is the biggest difference between the GFC, the global financial crisis, and what's happening today? The big difference is that uh, the banks are less exposed to real estate. Yes, there have been some headlines about banks being too exposed to real estate, and we've uh, seen a couple of banks getting into trouble in other U.S. regional banks. But uh, generally... The banks are in better shape than they were in 2007 and 2008. And the main reason is that they've lent less aggressively. So in 2007, 2008, just before the um, great crash, banks were willing to lend up to 80% loan to value on commercial real estate. And after the financial crisis, they learned their lesson and uh, the valuations were more appropriate, but also the loan to values were. So banks dropped to uh, for the senior debt to the 60%. So it means there's already a bigger cushion for the banks if valuations drop and things go wrong. So I think that's the main difference uh, from the banking side. So I don't expect there will be massive bank failure or bailouts as we saw in 2008, whereby banks first need to bail out their property owners and then subsequently the states need to bail out the banks because they become very heavy with real estate. So that's the main difference, which is, which is good. Well, that's reassuring. I think there's been a lot of uncertainty right now, and you can see that with the lack of transactions that's happening the first part of this year. But I think when you think about the way that people have come out of the pandemic and the way people are working today, and we can only speculate, of course, but as we see lease events come up, and it's, they're starting to happen now, but there's a lot of lease events coming up over the next couple of years, when those companies, after they figured out how they're going to work post-pandemic, there's an expectation that they're going to shrink their footprints. And if there's a tsunami of shrinking of lease footprints coming, then what is that going to do for office real estate? And then the next question is, if there's going to be a lot of space on the market, what does that do to valuations? And then the next question is, what does that do to pension funds? And you know, this becomes this sort of a snowball effect here. And so there's been a lot of question about this and a lot of people talking about making people go back to the office, but really it's about making best use of the office. And what does that mean? So are you expecting this to have a knock-on effect on the economy long-term? I think it's a bit too early to say at the moment because a lot of companies are still trying to work out how they are going to work in the future with home working and people in the office. During the pandemic, of course, everybody had to work from home and it seemed to work for a lot of companies, leading a lot of companies to say, well, 
this is fine. We don't we don't need an office anymore. And this was, of course, uh, led by some big tech companies like Amazon, TikTok, and Google. They all said that. Then after the pandemic, that was still the idea that people could do their job just as well from home as in an office. Um, but I think gradually what we're seeing is more and more companies are coming around to the idea that maybe this is not the way to, to work, that you can't have people working full-time from home. The main reason, of course, for that is that it's very difficult to instill a uh, corporate culture when people are all working from home and they're not connected. You also want people in the office to collaborate, to share ideas. That's far more difficult when they are all working from their own homes. But also for young people to uh, to join, they, they need to learn uh, what work is like. Uh, they need to be able to ask uh, questions. And you can't uh, you can't demand from a young person to, to sit in their bedroom and just work for a large company. Because at the end of the day, then it doesn't matter which company that person works for or where that person is based. So I think... I think what we're seeing at the moment, a lot of companies are trying to find a balance between working from home and working in the office. It may not be uh, back 100% full time in the office, but there's definitely more a majority of companies that now want uh, people the majority of the time to come back uh, to the office. And I think that trend, that trend will continue. So I think on that note, there is a bit of a return to the office. However, I agree there will be a lot of vacant space because even if companies allow people to work one day or two days from home, you do the math, it's like 20 or 40% surplus space. So what are companies going to do with that? Are they still needing that space or are they going to give it back or to the market or are they going to look for more efficient space? There's also a lot of talk about office space needed to be needing to be more space for collaboration where people meet and share ideas rather than sit from nine to five having away the computer so all these things are being trialed and uh, at the moment and companies are trying to work out what the best way forward is yeah i think companies are still trying to figure that out and the ones that are there's been headlines about them reducing space and i expect you know like you said there's going to be some reduction in footprints and you know, as that happens that's where the knock-on effect i i, I think about is because you see other headlines talking about you just just this week that uh, in 20 Canada Square in, in Canary Wharf, London, it sold for 410 million five years ago, but now it's on the market for 250 million because the loan wasn't being repaid, so Lloyd's took it back. And I just I wonder if we're going to see more of that happening. Yes, but this is not only driven by people working from home; it's also due to a rising interest rate. So the higher interest rate means that a lot of people who will have bought offices or any other commercial real estate for that matter, in the past couple of years, they will have financed it at very low margins. Now finance is far more expensive, so automatically the, the yields need to move out so that you already get a lower valuation. And of course, on top of that, you have the working from home trend, which is hitting offices. And what you see is when companies uh, still want an office, they want the best office in the best location. So it becomes attractive to get people back into the office. And so the people who own buildings that are not in the best location, that are not ESG compliance, they will they will be struggling. And that's that's the majority of the offices. Because let's be let's be honest, the prime offices is only five or ten percent of the total market. So you're describing the flight to quality. And if companies are reducing their footprints as lease events come up and they go into these prime offices. At some point, if they're only five to ten percent of the market, they're going to run out of space. So, are we saying that there's a need for us to repurpose 
new spaces or are we saying the cost of capital is going to prevent that from happening? So therefore we're going to not be able to meet demand. But there's a lot of, I think there's enough office space, but a lot of office space needs upgrading. And that's the big question, whether that's feasible for landlords. In the light of higher interest rates, uh, does it pay to upgrade a building, get more energy efficient, enable, create uh, co-working spaces within the building and make it more interesting for employees to return to the office? Yeah, and, and I just wonder, maybe this this is a good lead up to the article you wrote coming out of the, the ULI conference with Pimco Real Estate's chief exec, Annette Kroger. She talked about how they prefer debt to equity given this current volatility in the market today. I mean, we'll put a link in the show notes below, but you know, can you shed some light on that headline? Yes, I mean, um, she was on the panel about the capital markets uh, talking about where the investment market is and nobody's buying much real estate at the moment. Um, because investors are very uncertain where it's all going. So are there going to be more interest rate rises, which will have a knock on, on financing? Uh, what's happening with the economy? What's happening with working from home? What's happening with ESG? So real estate at the moment finds itself in a uh, perfect storm. All these challenges from different sides. So what you see with large investors like BIMCO, but definitely not alone, uh, other large investors are also thinking the same, is that they don't need to rush uh, at the moment to buy real estate and they probably have time to wait till things settle down a bit. Meanwhile, they see more attractiveness in lending against real estate because that means they've got less exposure to the, real, the underlying real estate than if they were to buy with equity. So that's what you're seeing. A lot of other people do not agree with that. And they see, for example, I was speaking, for example, to a Canadian investor from CPP Investments, which is a Canadian pension fund. They see more value at the moment in listed real estate because the share prices are so low at the moment, trading at massive discounts to net us in value. And they think, well, maybe we should buy a few stakes in companies. Is this a cheap and liquid way to get real estate exposure? So there's a lot of waiting and seeing where things go, and, and some people see value value in in a slightly different uh, situations at the moment. Quick break back in the studio with the CEO from Epicenter, Patrick Masterton. Patrick, welcome, and I have a big question for you. That question is. Obviously, Nornorm helps you move furniture from CapEx to OpEx. How has that changed for you in the deals that you're doing and the business that you're winning? As Epicenter, we were able to offer our customers an attractive additional service, I would say, because selling furniture as a service without having a lot of financial risk and impact on that has been profound for both us and our customers. We think it's fantastic that we can offer sustainable, flexible spaces that then can help, you know, supercharge, you know, the local entrepreneur systems in the places where we're active and you know the result for us going from a, a buy model to a, to a more a sort of a, a flexible model the way that we work with Norman has helped us creating an upswing in demand it has heightened our tenant satisfaction and it's also given us you know quite a substantial extra boost on in revenues when it comes to our revenues that we generate from from these private offices and I think customers are very much attracted by their circular approach the fact that it's highly flexible they don't 
don't have to spend a lot of time doing purchasing, putting that in sort of their balance sheets. So it's all fantastic operational flexibility and efficiency for our clients. So we're very happy with uh, you know how our partnership has been so far. Well, it sounds like many wins, and I always say the future is flexible. Thank you, Patrick. I was having a, a chat last week after, after I read your article. I shared it with an investment manager friend of mine. I won't name him because we were speaking off the record here. But you know, he, his, his comment, I'm curious to hear what you have to say on this comment. Maybe this aligns with what you just said. But he said debt used to be far cheaper than equity. Uh, leverage all in for a core investment would have cost somewhere around 2% when core equity investors were targeting 5 to 6 and he goes on to say that the cost of debt's gone up, but so has the target return for investors, as there always needs to be a premium over what cash in the bank could earn. So if you're the debt piece and the capital stack, it's less risky. And if values fall, the equity takes the first hit. We're in a market where values have fallen and interest rates have risen. If you're lending, it's basically a higher return than previous for less risk. Is that play into what Annette was saying? Yes, I think that's that, that's, that's a, good, a good point as well. It, it, a, it's less risky, and, and B, the returns are probably going to be uh, better. But I think it's the, the most important one is the being less exposed to the uh, risk, because uh, as you know, the, the equity will take the first hit on a, on a valuation. So if the prices are going to fall further that, then you are better protected by being in the debt than in the, than in the equity at the moment. Well, I want to move to the number of assets that aren't in that prime number. So you mentioned three to five, five to 10% are, are prime assets and flight the quality. These are where the customers are going to go. Well, that leaves a good 90% of, of assets that aren't prime. What happens to them if they need to be brought up to sustainable standards and infused with this hospitality and co-working that you talked about a moment ago, that costs money. And if the cost of capital is expensive and the margins are shrinking, how does that take place? How do we repurpose these assets? The number of assets will be will be all right to repurpose and, and get different use for it. And for the rest of buildings to hotels or residential, that's, that's not the problem. But there will be a large number of assets. There, there will be no uh, future for these assets. And the real estate industry has been talking about these assets for a number of years and there's even a term for it, they call it stranded assets, but nobody really knows what to do with them. And we know it's going to be a number of assets that are basically obsolete. So it's not only a question for the real estate sector, but also for society as a whole. What are we going to do with these buildings? Are we going to knock them down? Are we going to purpose them? Are we going to rezone certain parts of our cities for other use? What we want the future of work and life uh, to look like. And this plays into the uncertainty right now, I suppose, and the volatility. I know going back to what I said at the beginning about a snowball effect and the knock-on effect into the, the economy, we have some big decisions to make right now in, in government, in the private sector, and, and then obviously the, you know, the big institutional investors. We saw Blackstone divest most of their office portfolio. Maybe we'll see that with institutionals coming up, or perhaps somebody's going to see this as an opportunity 
and buy some of these traded assets with a value-added strategy vehicle, repurpose it, and that becomes the pipeline for future the future office. Fund Manager TVS recently had an interesting study where they went around Europe and looked at different cities and the markets within those cities, where it would make sense to upgrade an office building so it's still an office building in the future where it pays for itself. And there's just a number of cities in London, for example, Amsterdam, Copenhagen, um, all those cities it would make sense. But there are also a lot of European cities where it, economically it does not make sense to upgrade an office building and at the moment what we're seeing with offices is just a bit like the same with the same discussion we had a couple of years ago with retail a lot of people are saying that offices are not new retail retail is one of them great many people want to invest in in, in retail with the people buying online and fewer people going into the shops but there will always be retail there will always be shops people will always go and, and want to see the products themselves. So it's the same with offices. There will always be offices. So to write that, to write off a whole sector is a bit dramatic, I think. But yeah, you, it's between the winners and losers of uh, tomorrow. That's what um, everybody's trying to work out at the moment. This has probably been a bit of a heavy topic today. And, and I don't want to stop just yet because I know you and I were talking about the, the big fear over here in Europe is maybe fear is the wrong word, but is that what's happening in the US at least in sentiment, might come here to the to the UK and, and Europe. Do you have any views on on that, or, or what what's happening in the US and what can Europe learn? Well, I was at a conference this week in, in Amsterdam, and a lot of people said, "Well, yeah, we, we know what's happening in the US, but it does not necessarily mean that it's going to happen here in um, in, in Europe either." What you have in the US and in, in cities like New York, where People commute to work, takes uh, a long time, usually over an hour. They're sitting in terrible office buildings. And in, in Europe, it's a different picture. A lot of the commuters, first of all, the commute is shorter. Um, so a lot of people spend less time commuting, less than an hour. Um, they come by different modes of transport. They go by car, by bike, which is the case in the Netherlands, of course, or by public transport. So you see a big difference in culture. In, Commuting culture and work culture, and I think that's the main the main reason uh, the main difference between uh, the US and, and Europe. Uh, also, in Europe, apart from London, there's not many large cities where millions of people travel into every day on crowded public transport systems, which is not very appealing for these. Of course, a lot of European countries have smaller cities, and it's it's, it's much more about scale fewer people traveling into these cities than in a city like say london or or new york and people are living closer to work as well and in fact what you hear a lot of people on the continent is that they in fact prefer to work in an office because they can concentrate they can meet colleagues uh, rather than sitting on um, at home yeah, one of the things that I really appreciate about European cities, and you know, I, I love my country uh, in the U.S., but uh, I used to drive 100 miles a day one way sometimes, and that was, you know, not not always fun to be able to just jump on the train and not think about people and driving and this and that. I can just plug in a podcast. That's always been, you know, well appreciated on my end. So I can see what you're saying there. I think though, London 
and New York is a is, is a good comparison because I think there are a lot of people coming into London, obviously on the train, just like in New York, driving in as well, just like New York. And the commutes are quite long. Even if you live in the city, usually your commute is 45 minutes unless you live close to your office. Whereas like Manchester up in, up in the north, you know, it's a 15 minute city almost. And so that multi-use live, work, play has been great for bouncing back after the pandemic. Absolutely. And as I said, I was in Amsterdam earlier this week. And what you're seeing there is they have a um, financial district called the, the South Axis to the south of the uh, city center. It used to be only offices, a bit like La Défense in Paris and Pierre Wolf in, in London. But what you're now seeing is that uh, more and more people start living there. So they're building residential towers. Some towers are being converted into uh, residential. It becomes an, an area where people uh, not only come to work, but where they live, where they go out, where there's other things to do. So I think that's, that's going to be the future. I hope so. And I think the, the learning there, in, in my view, is that if, if you are you know in commercial real estate or in planning in a city, London or, you know, Berlin perhaps, or, you know, somewhere where there's a concentration of sort of this office centric area. What do we think? How do we think about that long-term and how do we bring in more use and have it be more dynamic? This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time on a Friday, Bert Eric. Um, really appreciate it. And he's in the office, by the way, you can <laughs> see him, but he is in the office on a Friday. Kudos. Thank you. I mean, it's quiet on a Friday, so that's the, uh, the main advantage of being in the office on a Friday. Cheers to that. I, I've, just been, I've, I've had many Fridays where I've gone in, uh, sp- specifically had a meeting for that reason. And then you, the restaurants are, are a little bit quieter as well. So uh, one final question, just to close it out, just, you know, as we in the almost summer, we're in the midst of our two week summer here in London. What do you have plans? Do you, are you going anywhere for holiday? Planning a, um, a work trip in Europe, visiting some um, European cities in, in uh, Belgium, Germany, and also seeing some family. Good stuff. That's fantastic. Uh, one of the things I love about living in, in, in London specifically is being able to travel around. And my last question for you before we close it out is where can people find you in person at the next conference? The next big conference is going to be the Expo Real uh, conference in uh, Munich in October. And I think that's going to be a, an interesting one because a lot of people have been the host on the second half of this year. They hope that investment volumes will be up again, that people, um, there will be more, less uncertainty in the market. People will be more confident of doing deals. So uh, there will be a good uh, time to take the temperature of the market. Well, there you go. Uh, you can find Bert Eric at Expo Real in Munich in October. Thank you so much. We'll put links in the show notes to your LinkedIn so people can connect with you. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, take care of yourself. And for our final segment, I'm back in the studio with Jonas, co-founder of NorNorm. So Jonas, we heard how you got started with Epicenter. We've heard from Epicenter CEO. Where's NorNorm now? Well, thank you. I think we're on a massive growth journey now. The world will never be the same after post-COVID. We're now in 14 countries, 59 cities, and we're now just entered into the UK. And I think we just closed our first Series A of 110 million euros. And we believe that we are going to be bigger than Uber because I think no one really wants to buy furniture because people want to have a subscription on this thing. This is one of the last frontiers that has not been serviceified yet. And I think we're going to really massive contribute to that. Well, there we go. A journey of innovation, profitability, and a greener horizon powered by NorNorm. Join the revolution and sign up for a furniture subscription. Visit nornorm.com and stay tuned 
to the Workbook Podcast for more illuminating narratives and transformative insight shaping the landscape of sustainable workspace solutions. And of course, I want to thank my Newflex colleague, Morgan Pierstor, for collaborating with me on this episode. A big shout out to Jeff for all your behind the scenes magic to produce the show. And my friend, mentor, and podcast prophet, Mr. Jason Allen Scott, for all your coaching, wisdom, and time to help me become a better host. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. I want to thank our headline sponsor, Nornorm, who we heard from across this episode. If you don't know, what Nornorm does, just a quick reminder, Nornorm is a furniture-as-a-service company. Last episode, I shared the first of three reasons why I believe they are a huge part of the future of our industry and why I wanted them as our headline sponsor. Here's number two. Nornorm helps businesses significantly reduce their climate impact with up to 70%. If we design our buildings to be sustainable, we should also be supporting our customers' efforts as well. Tune in to the next episode for more insights from Nornorm. And to hear my reason, number three. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. Making a high-quality podcast like this one takes a lot of work. That's a fact. But not when you hire a podcast company. With our White Glove experience, we handle everything for you. From guest outreach all the way through to publishing and promotion, we handle it all. You show up to hold great interviews and build relationships with your guests, and we take care of everything else. Podcasting is not just about the audience. Every podcast interview is the start of a new relationship. With Weekly Podcast, you'd build relationships with 52 ideal partners or prospects through your podcast interviews over the next 12 months. Do you believe that 52 new relationships will help grow your business? We do. Contact jason at apodcastcompany.com and let's talk. 